0: Partially Examined Life Philosophy Podcast Part 1 episodes are designed to be self-contained, fully satisfying experiences in themselves. But for hardcore philosophy fans, we record for another hour or so to release behind our various paywalls to folks that pitch in to help us make this show. What you're about to hear is a preview of one of these Part 2 episodes. We hope you enjoy it. You're listening to Partially Examined Life Episode 285 Part 2. On Nicholas Malebranche's Dialogues on Metaphysics and Religion, Dialogues 1 through 4. Let's get into more quotes, more specific arguments. I don't know, what do you guys have highlighted or whatnot that would be fun to read? So
1: one of the interesting things about, so this is in section 8, where he'll say sensations are not good evidence of an external mind-independent reality because we have hallucinations and so on. And we know of things that exist, even though they can't be sensed. And he mentions air, but think about atoms, right? And then even if we assume that external material objects constrain sensations or cause them, it turns out they don't without God's connecting things. But he says, we'll talk about that later. Ideas have their own internal constraints in relation to the intelligible world, right? So we can't just think that two plus two equals five. We can't think self-contradictory things. And he'll, you know, at some point he'll compare this to the pressure, you know, you put your foot on the floor and you get pressure back from it. There's something that impinges upon us. Well, in the intelligible world itself impinges upon us in a similar way.
0: Was it G.E. Moore that said, I have refuted idealism by kicking a rock? Is that (laughs) apocryphal? I think so. That's so funny that he's anticipating this. It's the floor. It's not a rock, but the floor resists your foot. I agree. But it's something entirely different from your floor or your body, which resists your mind and gives it the sensation you have of resistance or solidity. I will allow that the floor resists you, but do you think that your ideas do not resist you? Try to show me two diameters of a circle, which are unequal, or three in an ellipse, which are equal. Try to find a square root of eight or the cube root of nine. That basically is establishing that there is an objective world of ideas, which I feel like didn't come through in a modern way until Frege, quite a bit after. So here we get sort of the midpoint between Plato and Frega, right? That Frege was accused of being a weird Neoplatonist. Like, you're not supposed to do that in the 20th century. But for Malebranche, a diehard theist, God actually did everything, and we only feel pain and get deceived by the world because of original sin— Like, it's not too out of character for him to be doing this kind of shenanigans. You had sort of slacked at us, Wes, about we should see the admission of God in here as not some sort of archaic relic, but as playing a role in the theory, kind of like it does for Barclay, the mind of God. And I feel like you were maybe reacting to the way that I would react to a reading from this era in our first 50 episodes where I was like, ah, well, he was a theist. They're full of shit anyway. Whereas now I'm just past that. Like, yes, I think this is fantasy land. And when he explicitly starts leaning on original sin toward the end of number four as being an explanation why pain is supposed to be so helpful, it makes you take your hand away from the hot pan. Oh, but it hurts so much. Well, before the fall, he probably didn't let it hurt that much. But now there was a change. I do grin and cringe at that part but I'm so used to this.
1: (laughs) Hume asked this question later on. Why would we need the subjective experience of pain to get us to withdraw our hand from the stove? You know, a lot of things are just done unconsciously. Why does the mechanism have to correspond to any subjective perceptual experience? It's all mechanics, right? So we don't need the pain. That's the Humean
0: argument that will come later. All right, where else? So we're still in dialogue one for the most part.
2: To me, this is where we're making sense of What clear and distinct means. So where he says intelligible extension is also impenetrable in its fashion, this is what makes you see clearly by its evidence and its own light. To me, this is what makes sense of the notion of clear and distinct. It's when Descartes and Malebranche in some places referring to the way we know something is by its clarity and distinction. And the rules for the regulation of the mind are all about. How we get to the sign of knowing something is its clarity and distinction it has to do with the resistance, the analogy here, and he clearly means it to be only an analogy, but the part of the analogy that means anything is the idea that it has
1: resistance. It's impenetrable.
2: Ideas are intelligible by their impenetrability.
1: Yes, and their impenetrability is a product of you do a kind of variation in your imagination. You say, can I make this work? Can I make this work? Can I make two greater than one? And it just doesn't work. It's like a law of non-contradiction. So you come up on the terrain of the impossible and that's what's impenetrable. So he kind of ends this section by talking about the intelligible realm of extension in particular and its non-contingency and the fact that it's always present to the mind. It's bigger than any particular mind, right? It's something common to our minds. It's something from which we can derive more particular geometrical truths, right? So we can start out with this intelligible realm of extension and we can get the Pythagorean theorem. So this is why I was emphasizing the ontology part, right? He's doing what someone like Kant did with intuition and with or non-rational intuition and with, hey, this is in the mind. He's doing this in terms of an ontology of a realm this, you know, what we might normally think of as an intuitive framework for understanding things or for experiencing things—it's out there, right? It's out there, outside of us, and in fact, it is. He'll say we can't really even experience sensible shapes as such, except insofar as we already possess our, this access to this intelligible realm. And then he gets into the part which I've already talked about, where he talks about our experience of it varies with the various application to our minds. Which is to say, we might experience particular extended objects, we might be doing a geometrical proof, or so on. Different sorts of relations to the, the intelligible world of extension.
0: Well, and we've been using, just by talking about the intelligible world, it's like the mind is in its element. It's out of the Plato's cave, it's among the heavenly extended things. But then, when he gets into it, which is actually not too far after here in section 9 in here, It seems then like we're among infinity. We should be able to experience God in his eternal glory and all this stuff. But really, we still have these very finite, small minds. So he talks about specifically how the intelligible world affects the mind. So our minds are small. There's this objective, shared idea of infinity out there. It kind of bumps into our individual mind. And our individual mind is, gets an impression of it. Maybe it's like the wax, you know, that Plato talks about in the Theatetus or something. But because our mind is so limited, it's one of those things like we know infinity exists. We have this direct access to it, but we're limited by our own finitude.
3: I mean can we talk a little bit about just the acquisition of the idea to try to get at that a little bit? Because he says you can't get the idea. Let's just focus on extension. We're talking about extension here, which is
0: Infinite extension or just extension
3: at all? Being. Extension. Infinite, yes. Well, nine, he's talking about infinite extension, but yeah. He says you can't get this idea as a generalization from specific, particular things. That's one. You also can't comprehend it, meaning you can't take in infinity, the infinitude of extension, all at once, because then you would be infinite. Only God can do that. You only grasp specific parts of it. Third, this is something that's common and shared. It's the necessary condition for human consciousness experience, whatever term, however you want to characterize it. So to me, the question is, if one doesn't get there by induction, you don't deduce it rationally. You may get to a conception of what it is and its essence rationally after the fact, but you operate with the idea of extension, even if you're not a philosopher, right, even if you haven't figured these things out, so how does one acquire the idea? Is it implanted in your mind by God? Does that come up in one of the later one of the later dialogues?
1: Well, he does say in the next section right in section ten that we see all our clear you know just to say our a priori or necessary ideas in God that doesn't maybe doesn't explain much. <laughs>
3: This kind of goes back to my, what Dylan's point about experience. What is experience? Yeah, I don't know exactly what it is. I'm expecting to get
2: more about it because a couple of the, like, I think it's five and six are more about the mind-body connection and how sense translates into knowledge. But I like where you're going with the question, Seth, how do you get to the idea of the infinite without an extrapolation? From the finite. You gave the example of induction, even mathematically, of the idea that if I add one on and on and on again, that that'll just keep on going. That keep on goingness is one manifestation, one inductive manifestation of infinity, or the disappearance of the horizon, or other versions of it, which are extrapolations or even operational extrapolations that get you to infinity. Even if you come to the conclusion that then whatever that infinity is might be something that is not the same as an accumulation of the thing that you were thinking of before. But Mahler seems to invert those things, that the very experience of the finitude is from the universal light of reason. It is really infinity shining forth and by which we have experience of the particulars. It's only under the light of infinity, effectively.
1: Well, also, there's something very platonic here, and this becomes more apparent later on when he's talking about infinity in the context of generality. So there's kind of two discussions. One occurs here in the section we're talking about, but I'll talk more at length about this later on. But in the case of generality, just the problem of infinity in a different form, the idea is that you could say, well, why isn't it just that I have a jumble of confused different ideas and I extrapolate to them to say it's something general. You know, here's a tree, here's a tree, different experience of trees, combine them together, something very Lockean and sounding about this. And I get the concept tree. I get the universal. And what he wants to say is that, again, the universal tree implicates infinity. Yes. Any possible particular could fall under that universal. And... Counting from one to 10 trees, or from one to a thousand, or from one to a million, even, doesn't matter how high I count, that doesn't actually give me infinity. And if I extrapolate from that and say to myself, well, I could go on forever, there's got to be something that grounds my ability to do that extrapolation. There's got to be a concept or a Platonic form uh, that I'm remembering at that moment, Mino you know, like. I've got to be able to recollect or draw. He even uses recollection in this. But I've got to be able to draw on that to actually conceive of infinity.
0: If that sounds like the kind of thing that you want to hear more about, then please go to com slash support. Thanks for listening.